Well, good morning. Uh, just one announcement uh, this morning for you that I uh, don't want you to miss is that, you know, for the last 15 months, we've been videotaping our services and posting them every week online so that people who weren't here was able uh, were able to watch and kind of join us. Uh, uh, next Sunday uh, will be the last time we're videotaping and posting it uh, like online uh, week to week. We're going to stop doing that uh, after the first really first uh, Sunday here of July, second Sunday for those who are watching it. And so we just want uh, you to know it, those who are watching to know that. The reason we're doing it is that uh, one is I never really wanted to be a video preacher. I have a uh, face made for radio. And uh, so that's one reason. Uh, really, it's, it's that uh, there's, there's a time when I, I kind of feel like doing that, having that available online uh, potentially does harm. Uh, because, guys, it's time to regather. It's time for us to be together as a church. And uh, I don't want to be a convenient excuse for people being uh, unwilling to do what Hebrews tells us to do. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We need to be together. Now, for those of uh, those watching or uh, those within our church family who are either they live out of state or out of town and or, or they have genuine health issues. And so as a result of that, they're homebound. All you have to do is email us at info at huddobible.com and we will give you the link to the video because we're going to st- keep videotaping. We're just not going to be posting those uh, for everybody. Uh, we're just going to post them for those within our church family that are homebound uh, so they can continue to join us. So uh, if you got a copy of the Bible, open it up to the book of Isaiah. That's where we'll be this morning. So um, are you tired like not sleepy, I'm sleepy. Uh, but are you tired? Like are you, are you weary? Are you just worn down uh, by the experience of these last fifteen months? Like are you just tired of watching the news? Tired of uh, trying to evaluate and kind of navigate through? Uh, half-truths and untruths and everything else and contradictory information like has the pandemic has the social upheaval has the politicalization of every aspect of your life caused you to lose faith in mankind like have you been praying maybe more than ever in your life come quickly Lord Jesus Like That's the solution. He's the answer. He's the one who can set it right. Have you been praying that? Like, Have you reached a point in your life where you cry out like Isaiah in Isaiah 64? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood. And the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Lord, we need you. Do something. Like, we need an intervention. Like, we need something that only you can do. We need a peace that only you can truly usher in. Like, is that the cry of your heart? This morning, 
If it is, then you can pray that with confidence because verse 4 reads this, For from old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for Him. We can pray this kind of prayer because God is committed to answer it. Like we can pray this kind of prayer and cry out to God because we have a God who works for those who wait for Him. Like that's the God in whom we are believing. And we've been learning about Him. We've been traveling through the Scripture together, following the storyline of the Bible, and we are in the home stretch of the Old Testament. Like we're looking at a few prophecies and promises about the coming of the Messiah, who He would be, what He would accomplish when He, when he comes and what He would usher in at His appearing. Like last week, we looked at the servant's song in Isaiah 53. Amazing psalm written 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet foretold in detail the rejection of the Messiah, His death for the sins of the world and His resurrection. I mean, it's just incredible. An amazing chapter in God's book like that really captures the essence of the Gospel like no other chapter in the Bible. Jesus was rejected by the first century Jewish leaders. He was not the Messiah they wanted. He was not the Messiah they were looking for. They did not want a lamb. They wanted a lion, the lion of Judah. They did not want the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. They wanted the victorious king that we're reading about this week in Isaiah 63 to 66. They wanted that victorious king who would rend the heavens and come down. Like Isaiah uses this image that he picks from Isaiah chapter 40 that the, the, the sky, the heavens are laid out like this great sheet above us. And he's crying out in Isaiah 64, God, rip it open. Like rip it open and come down. Like in Jesus' first appearing that we read about in Isaiah 53, He answered, like I said last week, the question of questions. How can a holy God forgive sinners? I mean, that's the question of questions. If we are self-aware enough to know what sinners that we are, how can a holy God, a God whose standard does not change but is based on His own character, a God who has sworn that He will judge sin and cast it from His presence. How can a holy God forgive sinners? And in Jesus' second appearing that we read about in Isaiah 63-66, to He answers the question, what will God do to reverse the curse of Genesis chapter 3? Remember Genesis 3? I mean, Genesis 1 and 2, everything was awesome until it was not. Right until the world, because of the sin of man, was broken. And so what will God do to reverse the curse of Genesis chapter 3 and redeem all of creation? Like we read about what He's going to do in Isaiah 65. It says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. 
and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. That doesn't mean that those experiencing this have like a memory lapse. It's that this is going to be so extraordinary, so incredible that everything that has gone before pales in comparison. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. This is the same language that we read in the last couple chapters of the book of Revelation. It goes on to say, verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Guys, it's going to be extraordinary. God has made a promise and in that day it is going to be absolutely incredible because the Lamb, the Lamb of God, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth, the Lamb Jesus who like a sheep before His shearers was silent and opened not His mouth, the Lamb will win. Like He will bring peace, true shalom, by bringing an end to sin once and for all. So in your Bibles, if you have a copy of it, turn to Isaiah 62. This is the passage we're going to be looking at. Isaiah 62 and 63 this morning, beginning in Isaiah 62, verse 11. It says, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Look. Like, check this out. Don't turn away. Your salvation comes. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. Your salvation comes. And it's not a place. It's a person. And His reward is with Him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. What an incredible promise. Like we are told that when Jesus comes, when He arrives on the scene in His second coming, we are told that His reward will be with Him and that He will give us a name. We're His holy people. We're the redeemed of the Lord. We're those that He sought out And we are a city, the new Jerusalem, that is not forsaken. He works for those who wait for Him. And so what will Jesus do to make this happen? Like, What will Jesus do to to reverse the curse? To redeem all of creation? Like, What will Jesus do to bring peace by bringing an end to sin and rebellion once and for all? Well, we have the answer in the very next verse. It says this. This is what Jesus will do. It asks the question, who is this who comes from Edom? 
Edom is used symbolically, symbolically in the prophets for human rebellion. It's the nations and it's Israel in the, in the rebellion against God. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson robes, garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Who is this? It's the Messiah. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. This is Jesus at his second coming. And so the question is asked, why is your apparel red? And your garments like his who treads the winepress. And he answers, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. What horrific language. Like what terrible, graphic apocalyptic imagery you have here. And make no mistake, this is spoken by Jesus. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus, the Lamb of God. But Jesus, now the Lamb that we read about in Revelation, that Lamb who stands alive, though slain, that the nations flee from and cry out as they hide in caves. Let the mountains fall on us and cover us to spare us from the terrible wrath of the Lamb. Like this is the kind of language, guys, just to be honest, that Christians tend to shrink back from. We're kind of embarrassed by verses like this, and yet, hear this, this represents the full application of the work of Christ on your behalf. In fact, this represents an answer to prayer that you have been praying since you were a child Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He works for those who wait for Him. See, our real problem, I think, is that we have very unrealistic expectations. We think that we can have peace in this world. We actually think that we can have peace without surrender. Like we actually think that Jesus can bring victory and that would mean no one's defeat. Like you've grown up in a world where everybody gets a trophy and you read things like this and you think that seems so out of character for the God I believe in. But is the God that you believe in the one who matches with the Scripture, both Old and New Testament? He does not change. This is His name. 
you know, as a pastor and as a Christian for like more than half my life now, two-thirds of my life, I have found that the two most often repeated arguments against Christianity, the two most passionate arguments against our faith, like the two that come up in most debates, the two that are accompanied by the strongest emotions, the two that have the most traction are these. Number one, if God is all powerful and all loving, why doesn't he do something about the evil in the world? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever had that thought? Has anybody ever posed that question to you? I mean, God, you say he's all powerful. He can do anything. And he's all loving. That's his character. Well, if that's God, why doesn't he do anything about genocide? Why doesn't he do anything about war? Why doesn't he do anything about the starving billion people in the world? Like if God is all powerful and all loving, why doesn't he put an end to human trafficking? Like why doesn't he do something about the evil in the world? And the second question, often asked on the heels of this one, is how could a loving God send people to hell? I mean, you tell me that God is love and yet this same God sends people to hell? Like, I know that there are a lot of other questions, a lot of other doubts, and it's okay. Like I've told you before, it's okay to doubt and it's okay to question. God can handle all your doubts and all of your questions. Doubting God is like doubting gravity. You can say you don't believe it, but jump off a building and it will win. Okay, God is true, and because He's true, you can doubt Him and you can question Him. I know there are lots of questions, but these are the big ones, right? If God is all-powerful and all-loving, why doesn't He do something about the evil in the world? If you could keep those up. And how could a loving God send people to hell? I mean, these are huge, guys. The first question kind of assaults our sense of justice. And the second question assaults our sense of love, right? Like, I would never dismiss these. Like, these are real concerns on the hearts of people who have questions about our faith. However, might I just ask you to consider how each of these questions answers the other? Like, I won't dismiss them. I just might, I just ask you to consider how each of these two questions answers the other. I mean, if God is all powerful and all loving, why doesn't He do something about the evil in the world? Oh, wait, don't, not that. I mean, do something, but just not that. If God is loving, why would He send people to hell? Oh, my goodness, it's because. We're evil? And hell's actually exactly what we deserve? I mean, could it be that each of these questions answers to other? We may not like the solution that God offers. We may not like the answer that God gives in Scripture. However, our own solutions are often unrealistic and unfair. Like, we just want everybody to make nice. We just want everyone to get a trophy. 
You know, we want to put Mother Teresa right up there with Hitler. Like that's our solution. Everybody gets in. Guys, the truth is that humankind has an innate resistance to being ruled by God, to bowing their knee to Him. We have an innate resistance to playing nice with one another. We're terrible. If the last 15 months has taught us anything, it's that we live in a very broken world. Why do people need so much toilet paper? Right? I mean, have you wondered that? Like you go to the store during the height of the pandemic and people are just filling, filling their shopping carts with toilet paper, having no thought of the person who comes behind them. Their houses are still filled with toilet paper. They still have all of that sanitizer. They have it all. They didn't need it. But they made sure you didn't get it. Why is that? Because we have an innate, like this stuck in our heart, this innate resistance to loving other people and to playing nice. I mean, if we learned anything in the last 15 months, it's that. And if we've learned anything in the last 25 weeks of reading through the Bible together, it's that this problem is not unique to the 21st century. It has gone on and on and on. We simply find new ways to do evil. But it's the same old evil flowing out of our heart. Like we live right, right now in the United States, we live in a country where everybody, you see it on the news, seems to be crying out for justice. Something has to be done. Like we want justice. You have, we have a nation where everyone's crying out for justice. And the answer, the only answer that our culture seems to be giving is defund the police. Like that's the answer. Less poli- policing equals more safety, less policing equals like less crime. How does that work? Well, it works this way. I mean, like less people would speed if there were no speed limits. Well, sure, because there'd be no limits. Like there'd be no way of saying that person is speeding. I mean, they're just going fast, faster than me, but they're not speeding because there's no limits, right? But that's not really how it works. I mean, the reality is, how well do we do when there is zero consequences? Like when you know, like if you knew in your heart of hearts, you could get away with something and no one would know. No one would ever know. You would never answer to God. You would never answer to anyone else. Like you could just take that extra money. You could take that person's spouse. You could do whatever you want and there is no consequences, what would you do in your heart of hearts? Like how well do we do as a culture when we know that the police aren't coming to save anybody? Every major city in the United States is experiencing a crime wave right now. Like dramatically increased violence Dramatically increased rape, dramatically increased murders. It's like the purge. Defunding the police didn't work. 
seems like there's a bigger problem than the police. And the problem runs right through our hearts. And all of this, like you know, we're, we live in suburban Austin, a great place to live. Hutto, Texas, one of the safest cities in America. So all of this for us at least is hypothetical, like it's just a thought experiment until evil in the world impacts you on a personal level, impacts somebody that you love, or until you see it splashed on the TV screen and you see genocide and you see crime and you see murder and you see rape and you see human trafficking and then like everyone else, we cry out, where is the God of justice? Why doesn't He do anything? Why doesn't He show His power? Why doesn't He show up and set things right? And as I've told you in the past, when the author of the play steps onto the stage, the curtain falls and the play is over. And so one day He will show up in power and until then He's giving us an opportunity to repent. You see, our problem is we either want justice without judgment or judgment without justice, right? We either want everything to be fair and equitable without a cost, without any kind of punishment. Everybody gets a trophy. Or we want God to judge in such a way that it just kind of shakes out that everybody is happy with it. Like it just worked out. I don't know how Hitler's happy. But he's happy. I don't know how Mother Teresa's happy, but she's happy. Look what God did. We either want justice without judgment or judgment without justice. We want both without a standard and both without a judge who wields the sword. But God deals in realities, guys, not in hypotheticals. And He offers a real solution. He shares it in Isaiah 65, God speaking. He says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. And this is a very undignified picture of God. Here I am. Here I am right here. Right? This God who is eager. This God who is findable by anyone. Like God took the initiative to reveal Himself to us. Like what you know about God that is true is because God revealed that to you. Like we read in Romans 10.20, Paul quotes this to talk about how God has opened the minds and hearts of the Gentiles, that God took this gospel from the Jews who were rejecting it and He brought it to the nations and opened up their minds and those who did not seek Jesus found Jesus. Like He does not wait for us to show interest in Him. God makes the first move. It's like God is saying, literally, behold me. Behold me. Drink it in. Like, look at me now. I am ready to save you. 
Just turn to me. Like through the great adventure in the next couple of weeks as we go uh, into our neighborhoods and do these backyard Bible clubs, that's one way God is saying to our city, here I am and I'm ready to meet with you. Here I am and I'm ready to save you. Guys, you know, I, I think this, if you find it difficult to reconcile how a God of love can punish sinners in hell, then you should find it equally difficult to reconcile how a God of holiness can welcome sinners into heaven. How is that even possible? Knowing what God says about sin, knowing what the Scripture declares about His character, Like, how is it possible? Like, why aren't we offended as Westerners by the idea of a forgiving God? I think it's this, I think it's this reason. I think we expect it. Like, we've grown up in a culture where it would be good if we could actually go on an Old Testament boot camp where we just went away as a church for a couple of months and lived in the wilderness by God's law and saw how well we did with that. Guys, we would be, I want to go back to Egypt, right? All of us would be. Like, we've grown up in a cush world, told how wonderful we are our entire lives for the most part. It is so easy here, and we believe, like, of course God loves me. What's not to love? Of course God forgives me. I'm not that bad. Have you seen the rest of the world? Like, why is it that we have no problem believing in a forgiving God? It's because we are not self-aware And we don't know God for who God truly is. You know, in the majority of the world, God's judgment, the reality of hell, in the majority of the world, God's judgment is not the scandal. Grace is. In China, in Africa, throughout Asia and India, The idea that this holy God would welcome the likes of us into his presence and love us and bless us is scandalous. Verse 2, he says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. Like Paul quotes this in Romans 10, verse 21, to talk about the nation of Israel. And yet you get this image of God, even for rebellious Israel, holding out His hands, pleading, even begging, repent. You see, the Gospel tells us that people who know that they aren't good can find God but that people who think they are good can't. And the nations repented when they saw the Messiah. And Israel, for the most part, did not and has not yet. Isaiah continues, verse 11, But you who forsake the Lord, who forget His holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine, for destiny, who are going after foreign gods. 
I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to into the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of hearts, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. Because I spoke to you and you didn't listen. I revealed myself to you and you turned your back. C.S. Lewis writes, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God or those to whom God says at the end of time, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. In fact, in Scripture, hell is pictured with very graphic language. But it's pictured as punishment, as destruction, and as banishment. Destruct, uh, punishment, destruction, and banishment. That's what hell is, according to the Scripture, especially in the New Testament. This image of punishment runs throughout the Scripture. In Matthew 25, Jesus, at the end of a parable, says this. He says that these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Like in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, we read that at the end of days there is a great white throne and the one who is seated upon it, all of creation flees from in terror. And it says that I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in those books according to what they had done. Like Scripture tells us that hell is well-deserved punishment. In fact, Scripture tells us that hell is, in a sense, destruction. We read in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, spiritual death. Like the death that we read about in Revelation 20 that speaks about a second death, not simply my spirit like removed from my body and therefore I'm dead, but my, like my presence, like my person removed from the loving presence of God. Hell is punishment, it's destruction, and it's banishment. Like hell is seen in Scripture as separation or exclusion from God. Like that's found especially in the teachings of Jesus Himself. Hell is being cut off from Christ and cut off from his kingdom. In Matthew 7:23, Jesus says that he will declare to them, "I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Like I never knew you? Does he have a bad memory? No. He's just saying, "I choose 
to forget you. Hell is being forgotten by God. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me. And then, for me at least, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10 really captures, I think, like the clearest image of what hell will be like. Verse 6, it says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Like when Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, arrives on the scene, this is what the world will experience. Verse 9, it says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. Like right there in that one verse, we have all three pictures of what hell will be like. Punishment, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Punishment, destruction, and banishment. Can I just say, church, this is not simply a doctrine to be believed. These are people. They have names. This is some of y'all sons and daughters, brothers or sisters, moms or dad. This is college roommates and friends. This is neighbors and co-workers. These are people you love and some people you hate. But these are people. So it's not just a doctrine to be believed. We need to be moved. Like we should pray. Like this is why we learn to share the gospel. This is why we have hope that we want people to believe in and embrace. This is why we talk so much about Jesus. This is why we plant churches. This is why we give to missions. This is why we're here. In fact, I think this is so important for us to embrace because until we come to grips with this terrible doctrine, this awful doctrine, this true doctrine, until we come to grips with this terrible doctrine, we will not truly understand the depths of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Because just like hell, guys, the cross is punishment, it's destruction, and it's banishment. On the cross, Jesus died as a substitute for our sins. He drank full the wrath of God. He experienced the punishment for our sins. On the cross, Jesus offered Himself up as a sacrifice. No one took His life from Him, but He laid it down of His own accord. He experienced death. He experienced destruction. And on the cross, Jesus experienced, in some mysterious way, separation 
from his father's loving fellowship when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Banishment. Rebecca McLaughlin writes, on the cross, the one perfectly righteous, perfectly loving, perfectly innocent man who ever lived faced the full force of God's judgment. He took the cup and drank it down and then threw away the cup. In biblical shorthand, he went to hell. We tend to think of heaven and hell primarily as places to be sent, but the Bible tells a different story. Heaven, in biblical terms, is not primarily a place. It is shorthand for the full blessing of relationship with God. It's the prodigal son who has come home. It's the bride being embraced by her husband with tears of joy. It is the new heavens and the new earth where God's people with upgraded, resurrected bodies will enjoy eternity with Him at a level of intimacy into which the best of human marriages gives us more, no more than just a glimpse. Heaven is home. An embodied experience of deep relationship with God and His people on a recreated earth. On the other hand, hell is the opposite. If Jesus is the bread of life, loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, loss of Jesus is eternal death. If Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrificed for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. Guys, this is not simply a doctrine to be believed. It should change us. It should motivate us. It should spur us on because even now God is still saying to the nations, here I am. Here I am. Behold me. I am ready to be found by those who won't seek me. Let's pray. Father, help us as Christians in this room to not simply check a box in our doctrinal statement that says, I believe in everlasting destruction. I believe in judgment. I believe in the day of the Lord. I believe in hell. Lord, help us to move from simple belief to being motivated. God, let this truth that the Lamb is coming and that mercy is still offered in this life, Lord, let this truth motivate us to pray for the lost that we know and the lost that we don't. Let it motivate us to share the message of the Gospel, to learn it, to memorize Your Word so that we can share it. Lord, help this truth to change us. 
Lord, we thank you that this is something that as dreadful, as horrible as it is, Lord, it is held up in Scripture in stark contrast to the mercy that you provide to anyone who will simply come. We thank you for that truth in Jesus' name. I don't know about you, but I need the Bible to grip me and remind me of eternal realities. Uh, we read in 2 Peter that a time is coming when people will say, hey, uh, where's Jesus at? You said he was coming back, but he ain't here yet. Like he'd been saying that for hundreds and hundreds of years. Where is he? And Peter answers this way. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. But He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that it has done will be exposed." Somebody ask you if if God is all powerful, like like why doesn't He just come back? Like if God is a God of love and a God of power, why it, doesn't He just show up? And it's because He's a God of love and a God of power. He's not willing for any to perish. He's still giving a chance for those in our world uh, to repent and turn to Jesus. Like one thing you walk away with when you really look at what the scripture talks about in that final judgment and about hell and the lake of fire and everything else, you know, it could be lost in all the imagery and all the graphic nature of that. But one thing is for sure is that it's permanent. It's appointed unto man once to die and after death, the judgment. You get a chance in this lifetime maybe multiple chances to respond to the gospel and yield to Christ your neighbors have that chance your family has that chance and you are the one who gets to tell them here he is waiting for you waiting to forgive God bless you church